Welcome to the Heretex Podcast. You can get us at heretex.io or send us email at feedback at heretex.io. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the show and whether perhaps you'd like to join us for a chat yourself. It's time to talk about change. So hi, everybody. We're here with uh, Davi Olafir. Davi is the CIO of Westpac New Zealand and has done some really innovative things with structuring his organization in order to be more agile and place that agility really at the service of his business partners in terms of delivering real value uh, to the business. And part of that has also been uh, a real focus on metrics and how to track and trace uh, those levers in his organization in terms of developer productivity um, that really shift the needle for delivering to his business. So really super pleased to uh, to have my fellow countryman, uh, a South African, Davi Olafir, uh, with us. So Davi, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, Thank you very you. much, Justin. That's a pretty glowing introduction. Well, I, I think Mark and I are well known for exaggerating wildly when it comes to my guests. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think what's really good here is that we actually have someone that can actually talk yeah. about real yeah. agile, not, not like yeah. a lot of fake agile. It's like stuff fragile. that actually, you know, fragile. 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 Fragile agile. Fragile agile. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that? that's a topic quite close to my heart, fragile. actually. Right, exactly. So what did you do about Fragile Agile, Darby? Take us through it. Uh, yeah, um, unfortunately, the word Agile has become a, a fantastically cynical word, uh, most often used by large mm-hmm. organizations whose intent it is to um, unlock structural efficiencies or product productivity efficiencies to use all of the... Um, all of the enterprise words, all of the executive words. Uh, in other words, to reduce their workforce and get more done. Um, and it has unfortunately poisoned the well for a set of practices that should at the heart of them have have people first. And uh, my mission has always been to make sure that whenever we embark on any kind of journey um, that even gets close to any kind of lean practice or agile practice and the like, um, that that principle is in fact held up front is that we have to focus on those things that are going to let people experience that great day at work to let them go home fulfilled, you know, basically climb Maslow's hierarchy um, as high as they can, um, rather than just for us to unlock a efficiency number across the organization somewhere. So that's been the mission. Um, we've given that a go in two different banks, uh, most most recently, as you mentioned, at Westpac in New Zealand. Um, and yeah, so far it's been a, a very interesting learning journey. Yeah, so the, the first bank was, was Standard Bank in South Africa. I mean, what were the big differences between the two? Yeah, uh, no, in terms right. of the challenge? Uh, Standard Bank um, is a much bigger bank than Westpac in New Zealand, understanding that Westpac in New Zealand is a is an, uh, an operating entity owned by Westpac Group. Um, in South Africa and Standard Bank, uh, my remit was uh, for the engineering shop as opposed to for uh, technology for the entire bank. Uh, so the scope was significantly different. Um, so there I had the privilege of working almost exclusively with software engineers, um, top to bottom through the stack. Um, so the approach was very much on engineer, on engineering focus, on engineering techniques, uh, tools, uh, and the culture within an engineering team. Uh, at Westpac in New Zealand, it is a, because it's a smaller organization, it's not only the software engineers, it's also infrastructural engineers. Um, and most latterly uh, in the last, six months or so, uh, also including people from 
product, from marketing, from uh, analytics, and other parts of the bank. Mm. So yeah, much bigger scope. And what I think is, is quite interesting is what it means to be agile from those different perspectives, right? So when you're dealing just with the software developers, engineers, I think naturally there's an inclination for them to want to work more efficiently. When you start to loop in some of these other organizations, like you're bringing in infrastructure, you're bringing in product groups, there may not necessarily be that level of compatibility in terms of how they want to actually work. Is that something that you saw between the two different lengths? Uh, Mark, at, at the end of the day, um, what everybody wants is to cut the crap out of the workday. Um, exactly. you know, and, and, and not to be involved in, in activities that are not actually getting the work done. Um, that's one of the first things. The second is that everybody does want to feel a part of an outcome that's greater than just a task at hand, and that's a basic human need. Um, so I actually found that it didn't really matter or it doesn't really matter what discipline you come from, even into the business disciplines, uh, marketing and product and the like. Um, if you can satisfy people's need to get stuff done with minimal friction, then everybody's up for it. Yeah, it's, I think that it gets to like a core, it, it's almost like the, the core intrinsic motivation for wanting to come to work, knowing that you are going in, you are able to get your work done, that you feel good about it, and that you see the outcome come through. And it, it just, it and you have the so, resources, right? And you have the resources yeah, yeah. to get it done. And, just right. and, so and, awesome. and you can recognize your own contribution to it. Exactly. And we create these structures that seem to actually interfere with, some of those intrinsic motivations. Mm. So how, how, how did you how did you build that? Because certainly, I mean, uh, some experience of, of both of both of your examples having worked with you. Um, but could you perhaps talk a little bit about the journey at Westpac from the 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 initial engineering focus and getting people into tribes and, and that sort of thing, and then uh, beginning to deepen it into the business. Because, I, I mean, yep. I've seen that work very, very rarely, um, and I think you guys are a great example of it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, it starts uh, to understand uh, the, the directional change we made in, in traditional organizational change. It's, it's quite useful to understand um, what a sort of strategy to, to architecture to execution cycle normally would look like, you know, sort of classic MBA stuff, starting off with, you know, we all go away, we have a little... A little off-site or an indaba, as they used to be called. Um, we go firewalking and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Uh, we come up with a grand vision and we translate that into a strategy. And the strategy is, you know, basically nothing more than what we're going to do, who we're doing it for, how we're going to get paid, and how we're different. Um, we break that down into capabilities, those things we need to be good at. And then in the classic scientific design um, of organizations, uh, we would then go and we would take those capabilities, we try and arrange them into little boxes to make a structure and a, a control and governance overlay uh, and so forth. Uh, then we would go and we'd hire some people, put them in those boxes. Um, and then almost almost intrinsically, you've created the sort of waterfall style flow of work from you know one box to the other. And then a little while later, uh, we have to come back and fix it all because everybody hates it and the culture's broken. Um, Right. And so, so what we decided to do, or the hypothesis then was, if, if we got to the capability stage and we, we could figure out what we needed to be good at, and we could then overlay how it should feel when we're good at that, and we use that combination of the what and the how it feels to then allow our people to infer the structure and the control mechanisms 
that we would have a very different outcome. And, and that's in essence uh, the journey we went on at Westpac. Um, in 2015, uh, the team here was was reasonably miserable. Um, in fact, I was chatting to them about it yesterday. We had some great reminiscences on it. Um, to the point where at the very first uh, all hands, um, there were no questions, and that's very disconcerting when you're the guy standing up under the spotlight all by yourself. Uh, you know, sort of any questions, anything you'd like to know from the new guy, and it's this long, deafening silence. Just trick it. Yeah. And uh, eventually, one guy put up his hand in the back of the room, and he looked me in the eye uh, with a steely Wellingtonian glare, and he said, "I'd just like to know how long your contract is." <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, so the, the the first indications of there being a cultural problem were certainly there. Um, so what we started doing on doing is focusing on understanding um, what those markers were of a of a unhappy place, um, and then really focusing on uh, letting people or letting people see examples of other organizations where it isn't like this. Um, so it was a we led a sort of education process. Um, I called it the culture quest. We had like a little quiz and it was and it was all nicely put together. But what it did is it led people through case studies of, of organizations with great cultures, organizations like uh, Southwest back in the day, Southwest Airlines, um, and then a whole bunch of internet born companies. Um, and then we got in a room with uh, the results of multiple of our culture surveys. Uh, and we had a quick grief cycle about it. And the classic questions came out, you know, but Derby, it can't be all bad. And fortunately, the data helped us prove that it was. Um, and then uh, we actually spent some time thinking through a very simple question. And that question was, um, can you remember your last great day at work? And, and all of us normally can remember that day at work. You know, it's that day where you sort of got home and you said to your partner, hey, pour us a glass of wine. I'd love to tell you about my awesome day. Um, and once we had had that day firmly in our memories, uh, the next step was to say, what were the factors that made it a great day? And, and those are actually reasonably predictable um, across two banks now. Uh, and they normally involve having achieved something unexpected, something larger than you mm -hmm. thought was possible, uh, almost invariably with others, um, most often having been uh, given mandate and air cover by somebody uh, to say, just get it done, whatever you need, we'll get it, you'll have it. Um, and then the satisfaction from seeing that hill climbed or that dragon's laid or whatever the outcome was for the day. Yeah. Yeah. And the effect that that had is that it, um, it created an expectation. Um, so, you know, when you give people a glimpse of the promised land and you, you put them back into Mordor the very next day, um, it causes some very significant uh, dissatisfaction almost instantly. And, and then as, as the leadership team, the job for us was to be ready with just enough uh, knowledge and coaching and support and access to others who can provide those things to be able to answer questions as they came up. So if somebody came to us and said, hey, we're really struggling with uh, collaboration, to only inject the very first basic practices of what collaboration could look like for them. So the trick is not to arrive with the intent of being agile, uh, the intent is, or the trick is not to arrive with the book of method, you know, pick a method, dad, less scaled agile, any of those. The actual trick is to arrive with answers to the questions that are, to the problems that are making people miserable right now. And then to allow them to, to access those techniques and learn for themselves that they do in fact solve the misery. And then over time they become more happy. And the next thing you know, they're operating in a, in a fantastically agile manner. So that was in a nutshell, uh, the journey. It yeah. all sounds very hippie, I know. 
No, it's it's no. it it sounds it sounds super pragmatic. I, what was the challenge? How was the how was the challenge different for bringing your leaders, you know, on the journey versus the, the workers, the, the the people on the ground, as it were? How did you approach those two differently? Yeah. Uh, so one of the first principles is simplification. Um, in that we we took what was an extremely broad leadership structure, which meant that people had very small mandates. You know, we had very, very granular leadership positions, you know, like there was a head of integration and a head of data and a head of uh, testing and a head of, uh, of, of Java development and so forth, um, which is which is quite classic when you've when you've structured yep. your organization according to its capabilities. So there was no cross functionality in that. The second problem was um, that besides for cross-functionality, none of these leaders had enough mandate to be able to change how we were operating. So one of the first steps was to contemplate what are the biggest possible blocks that we can give to leaders so that they can influence as much of their own world as they possibly can without having to negotiate with you know upstream and downstream. Um, because it's only then really that somebody can make the call to go cross-functional within his environment without having to have, you know, death matches with everybody else about who has to give away what. Yeah. So yeah. that's one of the first principles that you have to simplify. Sorry, Darby, could, could you give an example of that? Um, yes, we ended up um, back in the day, I, I think the first simplification was just for my own understanding. I went with a very simple structure that was essentially a plan, build, run, manage uh, organization. Um, yeah. So plan was architecture, tech strategy, that kind of stuff. Um, build was all parts of software engineering. Uh, run was uh, production and infrastructure, understanding that uh, the majority of our infrastructure is actually outsourced. So that's more like a vendor and partner management kind of organization. Yeah, so and then manage was. Hmm? Oh, so it almost sounds as if you went from, okay, here are the capabilities of people, and that's how our organization is, to how do we actually get things done, or how are we going to get things that's done right. better? Yep. Mm. And so that's a great summary. That's exactly what we did. The, uh, the next step then was, for, and then manage uh, was, you know, sort of basic uh, office of the CIO kind of functions, your financial functions and that kind of stuff. And then also back in, back then we had a, a pretty formal PMO uh, that was also in that manage, in that manage block. Um, do you, do you label your office of the C, CIO, OCIO? Um, we don't, we don't. Um, it's just a handy, it's just a handy context because other people recognize it. Um, I find it a little, uh, a little bit too, uh, what's the word? I want to say arrogant, but that's, that's disrespectful to others who have these things. Um, I just don't feel like I need an office of the CIO. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, if my, if my Latin, if my Latin hasn't completely left me, Occhio, O-C-I-O, is, is Latin for leisure, which is oh. probably quite appropriate. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the leisurely CIO. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> gonna remember that. Actually, first I'm gonna Google it, and then I'm gonna remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We may have to check because it's been a while. <laughs> to be frank, yeah, not a lot of conversational Latin here in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> Just as an aside, how many years of Latin did you end up taking? Oh, a few, a few. Um, it wasn't as much as French, but I, I don't know, three or four. That's seven. Wow. Okay. So can you remember Akia? No, I no. can't. Okay. Well, there we go. No, no yeah. conversational yeah. Latin. Yeah. In this Definitely Google it, Darby. Definitely yeah. Google it. Well, I've, I've known uh, just enough for going on 
Jeez, Justin, it must be going <laughs> right. on six or seven years. Um, no, it's, it's entirely coincidental that that's the amount of time you guys have spent in Latin. Although much of it has felt yeah. like Latin and sometimes a bit of Greek. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of ancient Greek hiding for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, for, for the for, for the change and yeah, as as Mark said, just focusing on how we get things done, and then just understanding these are the things we need to be great at, mm. right? And this is how we remove all of the blockers. Yeah. Um, how do you, you know, if you've got the distribution of the organization, there's a ton of people who probably were up for it the moment you walked in. And then there's mm. a ton of people on the far tail who probably never will be up for it, no matter what you do. Mm. How do you manage that? How, how do you bring, how do you understand what's good enough and how you bring enough of the organization to cross the tipping point, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think the trick for one is that everyone needs to understand that um, that the that the journey is a, is an opt in. It's not a sentence, you know. So nobody gets given custodial sentences, um, and that they get to opt out as as often as as they like. Um, and one of the tricks is to have a very clear rhythm at which these opportunities present themselves. You know. Um, it's, it's quite important to anchor the entire journey on, on big events and visible changes um, so that you can actually tell the story of these changes. And at each of those yeah. big events or big iterations, um, make it clear that the opportunity for people to opt out is always there. Um, well, it's, you know, the, so, the classic so, iPhone so message, sequence, I guess. Big right. So it's a sequence of these big events. Yes. So, for instance... Yes. Like replatforming, I don't know, your internet bank or something. This is an example of a big event. And then we're saying, okay, everyone, who wants to be part of this massive revolution? And if you don't, that's totally cool. Yeah, and that's fine. And we'll do everything we can to make sure that you land in the industry in a place where, you know, that's better suit your your, your own style. Right. Uh, and and right. to keep it completely non-confrontational as well. You know, these are, these are adults who've been around for a while, and they're more than welcome to make those choices. And that's fine. Um, yeah. What we did also learn, which is quite interesting, um, is that we saw the emergence of some real firebrand champions of change um, along mm -hmm. the way in the journey, actually in both organizations. And, and this is the first time that I've actually had to stick around for the whole long tail of one of these uh, at Westpac. And uh, I say that like it's a sentence. I have, I've had the privilege of seeing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, knowing you, knowing you as I do, Darby, normally, normally they catch up with you before. So, you know, you know, I'm uh, I'm still looking <laughs> over my shoulder today. Uh, and, and what I did notice is that those early champions um, are extremely fiery, um, and they tend to do themselves a damage. So what I'm rolling through in my mind now is how does one create slow burn change champions? You know, ones that aren't going to aren't going to completely, mm. you know, turn into ash after a year or two because of the energy they've expended. Uh, that's an interesting problem set. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's think about that a little bit. I mean, you know, similar to similar to the change journeys that that, that I've been driving, um, I, I think there's often a question of the energy that the leader has to put in, Davi, and then the energy that you require from the the change agents in the team. And yeah, the the, the impact on the leader, I think, is often underestimated. Yes, you're 100% right. Um, I have on occasion got to the point where, you know, you've just basically had enough because of that amount of energy. Um, 
and and that in itself is a is a reflection that we need to be careful not to let these these big change journeys be cults of personality uh, because it isn't sustainable for anybody uh, especially not the leaders exactly yeah so i mean how do we guard against the cult of personality that's a great point how do we how do we guard um, so interestingly, we've we've just gone through uh, another iteration. I mentioned that we've we're starting to integrate cross functionality across our business units as well. Um, and I've quite consciously stepped away from being the you know the, the big voice uh, up on the stage, and that seems to be working well because now I have a team of of nine leaders who, although they do this in their very own style, are actually creating their own version of, of what this leadership journey looks like. And I think that's actually the trick is to spend the time to create a leadership team with you who are all able to be, you know, small versions of the, of the personality uh, or their own version of the personality, I guess is more accurate. Um, right. So that, so that they can actually drive that enthusiasm and, and then that heat closer to the floor. Otherwise it's always, you know, it's all a little bit evangelical otherwise, which feels odd. And I guess it's a bit fractal, right? In the sense that those leaders then, hopefully, as you've gone through this journey over the last three years, those those leaders are creating their own leaders that are yeah. pushing those messages through through their organization. Yeah, absolutely. And you also see them become quite uh, quite attractive to the market quite quickly uh, because it becomes known. And you have to be okay with that too. Interesting. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, you're, if you do your job right as a leader and you cultivate this this other layer or layers actually in the organization of other leaders who are kind of taking the vision but maybe a little bit of a different spin based upon who they are and their personalities yeah. you're going to lose a lot of these people at some point yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and, the and reality is you yourself yep. you, right? no sorry Darby, go ahead sorry justin yeah it's especially if you're still there Mm. then they have to go somewhere. Yeah. Yes, in terms of runway, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm actually thinking more about people at the mid-manager level who go through these journeys, end up putting their arms around, you know, some really cool technology or organizational transformation, which then gives them very marketable skills. Mm. And they're then offered a choice between essentially going somewhere and doing it again, more or less from scratch, or continuing to do it where they are now. And in that case, the trade-off is quite simply, does it feel better? And do I feel that, I've, that I'm still learning new things where I am? Yeah. Versus, well, if I go do this again, I'll be learning new things because it's a new organization. But for me, I, the way I sort of process it is, it, it's always about trying to maintain that, that's the phrase you used, Darby, this, you know, that great day at work where I'm learning a ton of stuff, I'm pushing the needle. And if, after you've scaled a little bit, people start to feel that it's kind of turned into the status quo, I think that's when you lose them. Yeah, there's, there's actually two sides to that. That's a great observation. Um, is that people can gravitate either towards wanting to become uh, leaders, servant leaders, or um, essentially custodians um, mm. of, of a specific thing, a platform or a discipline or whatever it happens to be. Um, the thing to watch out for uh, on, the, on the custodial side is that quite quickly people become um, 
more than protectors, um, they essentially become the vessels of knowledge and hence become bottlenecks uh, in and of themselves. Uh, and also quite quickly can move away from being custodians to feeling like owners. Um, and the, the semantics in those two words are quite important, um, is that as, as a custodian, your job is to make something great for everyone. Whereas as an owner, you make it great for yourself, uh, sometimes at the cost of others. Uh, and that's also something that one has to be quite careful of and, and watch very carefully. I love you mentioned you mentioned needles, Justin. That's a, that's an important point because as much as this all feels um, very hippie and existential, and it is, it is. Um, that's important and valuable work. Uh, in an enterprise, we still have bills to pay, so it's quite important that one has a, a view as to how you prove that this is better than what we had. Yeah. And and the conundrum here um, is that there aren't very many ways in which to measure a efficiency difference, if you will. Uh, between methods, uh, well, not easily anyway. So early on in our journey, um, I was very lucky to have a fantastic statistician in my team by the name of Stuart. And and I posed a simple question. I said, Stuart, um, come up with a way that where we can infer from our data, and that's quite important because I didn't want this to be work that someone had to do in their daily work so that I can measure their work, if you know what I mean. Measurement shouldn't be work. It should just reflect. Um, how, how would I know on a some unit basis of some sort um, that one is better than the other and that I can use a consistent set of tools to measure the throughput efficiency of any method? So be it a waterfall method, be it different styles of agile methods, be it lean, whatever, it doesn't matter. I just needed to know somehow that one was more efficient than the other. And he came up with a, with a, with a great set of, uh, of data tools where he can head into either a time sheeting system or into, into our activity system like JIRA. Um, and he can actually then reflect back for us a structural efficiency measure. And it comes back as a percentage, or if you will, as cents in the dollar, which is quite, which is quite a unique way to be able to speak to my colleagues and say, hey, uh, of the dollar that we put towards X or Y problem, uh, 23 cents of that dollar is actually solving the problem and the other is actually just noise um, and inefficiency. Uh, we also managed to then see from the data, uh, we can actually start seeing things like handoffs, wait time and all those classic lean waste. We can actually see them in the data. Um, what we had to resist was the urge to use that as a comparator between, between value streams or between squads. Um, because right. actually what you want is you want this to be a mirror uh, not a target, because what I needed to be able to achieve was to say, if we, if if a team made this change or that change in the way they were working, is it empirically making them more efficient or not? And if the answer is not, um, is it a desirable not? Because there are some inefficiencies that one has to that one has to uh, tolerate and sometimes foster um, for the sake of you know governance or safety or risk or whatever the case may be. Uh, but there are others that are just pure waste that we then have to, you know, figure out how we go about fixing those. So as it stands today, when we do make changes in the organization, one of the first measures that we look to is, has this improved uh, the structural efficiency or not? And then what are the lessons to be had from that? Um, it means that uh, today people who are, are tribe leads in our space um, are actually equipped to be able to see whether or not they have too many handoffs or the right number of handoffs, but at least they've got the data that allows them to see that. Now, as a, as a measure, uh, the first time we measured this uh, at the enterprise level, uh, which was in 2015, 
Um, the number came back as 23 cents, which is why I mentioned that number. Now, 23 cents in the dollar is, is not a very efficient uh, state to be in at all. Uh, you know, in less than a quarter of your efforts actually solving the problem, that's pretty rubbish. Um, and where we are today, we're at about 66 cents. So two thirds of, two -thirds of our effort are actually going towards ah, solving yeah. problems. Yeah, it's a big change. Um, and the nice thing about that change is that when I speak to the exec, it's a monetizable change. I can actually put a value on it. And that's quite important. But, yeah. you know, and as, as wonderful as the, the quantitative perspective of putting it to financial sense, I mean, do the people feel different? Does the organization, do the executives feel like they're getting better software delivery, that yeah. there's better results, that a product is getting out to the market faster? Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the interesting thing about uh, enterprises, or people in general, I guess, is that baselines reset real quick, um, which means that expectations are reset uh, almost instantaneously. Uh, so one never gets to the stage where, you know, uh, we're in, we're in Shangri-La and, and our expectations are being met and we always want more. Um, but what is fascinating to me is, is understanding what that wanting more means, you know, where it used to be, I want, I, my projects are all late and they're always expensive to now, what can I, what can, what can we deliver this quarter? <laughs> you know, where the change cycle used to be 18 months. Um, those are, those are great changes in the organization. Um, it's also fantastic to have seen language change in the executive, uh, you know, from why are we always late and who's going to get fired to what are the roadblocks that we can roll out of the way and, and who can we help and how can we improve? Um, the last thing is that we actually went through a massive efficiency program run by a consulting company. Um, and the only part of it that essentially we had, we kept within our domain was the change in our working style and tech. And the single largest set of contribution to the outcome of that efficiency program was actually the contribution of structural efficiency, um, which created, um, probably gonna get the numbers wrong because it's been a little while, but something like $40 million worth of new capacity without having to um, hire anybody, just by changing the way that we were going about thinking through the work. Now on a portfolio of only 150 odd million dollars, that's a massive change. Yeah, that's incredible. That really is. Wow. And that's a pretty good that's a pretty good note to uh, to wrap up on. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, so I mean, my my three things. So the we we always try, Davi, to to identify you know three things that people can kind of do tomorrow. Um, having having listened uh, having listened to you. So these are the three that I'm taking away. One, I think it's really important to to know what you actually need to be great at. And be precise about what that is. And I think a lot of teams don't do that, kind of wander around in the darkness. The second thing is let's create events, events that are that symbolize and mobilize that the change and then give people the opportunity to opt in uh, or to opt out. But let's create that opportunity in a way that is about the excitement and what we're trying to achieve rather than just the org structure. Yep. which is, oh, we've created a new agile organization or, or, you know, whatever. And I'm sure we've both seen that dozens of times. And then I think the third thing is, um, you know, your point around measurement, you had a great, a great sentence, which was, you know, the measurement shouldn't be work, it should be a mirror. So instead of using it as a stick to beat people with, measurement turns into a rich enough source of information so that I can make better decisions 
how to make my team feel that they're being more productive. Yep, and right. you know, I think creating that sort of measurement culture. Um, and so, you know, for those for those listening, I'm sure we all have many dashboards that we have to populate and respond to and are held accountable to. But maybe something to think about is how many of those dashboards actually give you data that you can actually use to make a change, as opposed to just telling you that you're not good enough or telling you that you're better than your neighbor. And how useful is that really? Now, I may add like a, a fourth thing. Okay. Because and I think this is, this is a really critical insight just around how you think about your organization, how you get things done. Stop getting stuck in the functional yeah. perspective of what you do as an organization and really think about those, those swim lanes of how we get things done most effectively so we accomplish a result. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Javi, we'd awesome. love, to, uh, we'd love to have you back to... Um, uh, to hear about any uh, any other significant changes, but thank you so much for joining us this time, and um, uh, we wish you well. Yeah, thank you again, Davi. This was really really phenomenal. Thank you, team. It's been a privilege. Thank you for listening to the Heretics podcast today. We hope you listen to another one really soon. Please accept our apologies for any technical issues and sound quality. We promise we're getting better, and we hope you are too. See you soon. <laughs>